Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Robin Steinberg. She's the founder and CEO of The Bail Project, a nonprofit organization that combats mass incarceration by disrupting the money bail system one person at a time. As a public defender, Robin represented thousands of low-income people for over 30 years. Many of her clients awaited their court date in jail because they could not afford their bail, often a sum as low as $250. She came up with the brilliant idea to establish a revolving bail fund in the Bronx, which is serving as the model for the bail project. The data that the Bronx Freedom Fund gathered in over a decade revealed that cash bail only serves to dehumanize and entrap the poor in the criminal justice system. How does it relate to mass incarceration? What are the consequences for our society? It's enormously expensive to have a pretrial justice system the way that we operate it. American taxpayers spend $14 billion annually holding people in jail cells that haven't been convicted of crimes. And if you calculate the collateral consequences of that, it's estimated to be as high as $140 billion a year we spend to hold people in these horrible dehumanizing jail cells who have not yet been convicted of a crime and likely won't be convicted of a crime. That's a staggering number and a magnitude of injustice on the part of our society of which most of us are truly not aware. I bet if more people understood what was happening, we would demand change. That's why we'll be talking today about the origins of cash bail, how it has morphed into the tool of injustice, and how a future without cash bail would be humane and just. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Let's start with the basics. What is bail and how has it become weaponized into a form of punishment for the poor? So bail was originally created actually as a form of release. The theory was that if judges simply set a certain amount of cash that a person could afford to pay, they could pay that money after they've been arrested and that would create an incentive for them to return to court. Over the years, though, cash bail began to be set at amounts that low-income people could not afford. And so it literally became the thing that was holding people not just in jail cells, but it became the price of your freedom. The cash bail system in America has become the single biggest driver of mass incarceration in this country. For the past 20 years, it has been the sole driver of all jail growth across the country. So bail has become the thing that actually holds people in jail cells, not actually assist people in getting out. So to be clear, what you're saying is that people are in prison on bail before their trial and can't get out. So bail gets set when somebody's been accused of a crime, but not yet convicted. So it is set at the very earliest stage once the handcuffs have gone on and the police have booked you into a jail. Most people in jails across this country are being held there who have not been convicted of a crime. The overwhelming majority of people in our local jails in this country are being held there solely because they cannot pay for the price of their freedom, which is the cost of cash bail. So how do we get here? Why do you think this has morphed into the situation over the last few decades? 
So during our Get Tough on Crime years in the 80s and the 90s, we expanded our police forces and militarized them. We set mandatory minimums. We began to do what we called, quote unquote, quality of life policing, which meant we were policing minor offenses, predominantly in communities of color and low-income communities. Uh, We began to criminalize mental health and immigration and other marginalized communities. And as our jail and prison population grew over those years, the Get Tough on Crime years, bail began to be used as a mechanism to hold people in jail cells. Why? Because it is the fastest way to get somebody to plead guilty to a crime. And the reason is the experience of being in jail is so terrifying and horrifying and dehumanizing that people will plead guilty to things even if they didn't do them just to go home to safety and their jobs and their homes and their communities and to kiss their kids goodnight. Can you tell us a little bit more what it's like to be in jail? What are the dangers of going to jail for even one night? So when I was a public defender, I can't tell you the number of judges that used to say to me when I would fight for my client's freedom at the very initial stage when bail was being set, they'd say, counselor, why are you getting so upset? It's only a few days in jail. And what judges didn't understand is that those first few days in jail makes all the difference. Not only are people subjected to sexual victimization in those first few days, not only do at least half of jail deaths, including suicides and homicides, happen in that initial period of time, but everything happening to your life outside and your family's life can happen in those first few days as well. You can lose your job. You can lose your immigration status. You can lose your ability to be in school. Um, you can lose your housing. You can and even lose custody of your children just because you've been held in jail for a few days because you didn't have enough money to get out of the ATM machine to pay for your bail. And so all the things, the devastating consequences of jail can happen in a very, very quick way, even in those first few days of incarceration. That's why eradicating the American cash bail system is so incredibly important. So as far as I can tell, you're the pioneering organization that has figured out that bail is an essential part of changing this dynamic. How did you come up with that idea of having a bail fund? So first, I think it's important to say that low-income communities and communities of color in this country that have been impacted by the criminal legal system for generations have understood the importance of bail. Churches and backyard barbecues and friends and family members have always pooled together resources to try to buy the freedom of their loved ones. What we were able to do was 12 years ago, create a first-of-its-kind revolving not-for-profit bail fund in the Bronx that was funded by philanthropic dollars um, and pay people's bail and then also track what happened both to their lives, to their families, and to their criminal cases as a result of being able to be free and fight your case from outside. Can you explain what a revolving bail fund is? Sure. Because bail comes back at the end of a criminal case, assuming you make all your court appearances, you can create a fund right, that will revolve over and over again. So you pay bail for one person, they make all their court appearances at the end of the case, that money will come back into the fund. And you can use that same dollar over and over and over again to pay the bail for other low-income people around the country who can't pay bail. Uh, in the Bronx, we used $1 two to three times a year. And we can use those same dollars over and over again to pay other people's bail who otherwise would have to remain in a jail cell because they didn't have enough money. That's a brilliant idea. Tell us a little bit more about what happens if you're defending yourself from the outside as opposed to the inside. What are the differences? 
So as we tracked the data for over a decade at the Bronx Freedom Fund, we began to learn not only were you able to prevent the collateral damage and devastating life circumstances to you and your family and your community if you were free to fight your case, but it actually had an impact on the case outcome. What we learned over a decade of data was that when you pay bail for low-income folks, that about half the cases got dismissed. That was really, really telling in terms of what it means to be free and how much more power and leverage that gives you to fight your case. The other thing we saw was very, very rarely, even when people were convicted of the thing they were arrested for, did they wind up getting a jail sentence? Only 2% of our clients actually got a jail sentence on the case that we paid bail for. That actually taught us that when people are fighting their case from a position of freedom, judges and prosecutors are more willing to engage in alternative to incarceration as sentences. It might be community service, it might be some form of restitution, but the players in the system were more willing to engage in non-incarceratory sentences, which obviously has a much more positive impact on the person who got convicted and their family and their community and their future. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, they're already out and about, and it doesn't appear that they are a threat to the society in the way that you think they might be. If that's already the case, it makes sense to say, well, maybe you can just do community service and you don't have to go to jail. But I'm interested in this other thing you just said, which is that 50% of the cases were dismissed. How is that? Because that's a staggering number that we are jailing people, and 50% of them don't even need to be there at all. Well, I think that really reflects the fact that we have criminalized race and poverty and mental illness and immigration and, frankly, criminalized marginalized communities in a way that when the police are bringing people into the system and we rotate about 12 million people through our local jails every year in this country, um, criminalizing everything from jumping a turnstile to having a you know taillight out on your car, what you realize is that when people are in jail, everybody in the system understands people will plead guilty to get out. But when they're out of jail, they're forced to analyze the cases and to really ask the question, A, do I have enough evidence to sustain this case? But B, should I even be prosecuting this case? Is this really where we want to spend our resources and tax dollars on? Is this really what the prosecutor's office wants to spend its time doing? I, I also just want to be clear that one of the things that's really important is a revolving bail fund model is a very very effective tool in combating incarceration and combating the cash bail system, but it is not the solution to the injustice of cash bail, right? You don't want to think about bail funds as the answer. You want to think about them as a powerful, impactful tool that will both get people out of those jail cells right away and allow us to collect the data so that we can inform policymakers and elected officials and other organizations working to move systemic reform forward. And that really is the purpose and the mission of the bail project. We literally hope to put ourselves out of business. So have you seen an example anywhere where a modernized bail system works? Well, you're beginning to see reform efforts across the country take hold. And while I wouldn't say any of them are perfect, they're certainly moving in the right direction. The ones that really sort of stand out are when the reform efforts honor the presumption of innocence, where they do not incorporate an idea that you can predict, quote unquote, dangerousness, where they honor the experiences of communities that have been impacted by this and have included them in the conversations about what systems look like. 
any post-cash bail system simply cannot include anything where the person who's accused has to pay for it, whether that's, you know, the setup of an ankle bracelet or any other kind of supervision and monitoring and conditions, because you will then recreate the exact same two-tier system of justice, right? One for people who have money and one for people that don't. What our, our entire system rested on was the assumption that money made people come back to court. What our program demonstrates is that that's not the case. So we can remove money from the pretrial equation and ensure that people are going to come back to court by simply addressing their needs and by providing court reminders, right? Effective court reminders. We call that community release with voluntary support. It's a simple version of what is called in many jurisdictions, releasing somebody on their own recognizance, but we come from a needs-based perspective, which is we recognize that when people are coming out of jail, they may have needs that need to be addressed to help them get back to court. That might mean they need a transportation voucher. That might mean that they have a childcare emergency, but that there have to be ways to really address the ways in which we can help support people when they get out of jail to ensure that they come back to court and that their needs are being met. Given your success in the Bronx for many years, what was the catalyst for you to want to take that success nationwide and form the Bail Project? We did this work for over a decade in the Bronx, and when we saw the data, we knew that this was a scalable model and that it was incumbent upon us to really think about how do we scale this across the country to provide the same kind of both immediate relief right, to people stuck in those jail cells, but also to really use what we're learning and the data we're collecting from a national perspective, while we're also elevating the human stories that actually show the impacts of pre-child detention to move systemic reform forward. So it's a two-pronged approach. We're just taking what we learned in the Bronx and trying to spread it across the country to 25 representative sites that will make the case that we do not need cash bail and that all you need are effective court reminders and voluntary supports for people and people will come back to court in overwhelming numbers. And so far that's borne out now that you're nationwide? We're a little bit more than a year since launching. We're now in 13 sites across the country and we are collecting the data. Our preliminary results indicate that we are seeing a lot of the same dynamics being replicated, the same levels of dismissals happening. Clients are making the overwhelming number of court appearances that they're supposed to make. I think it's also, you know, important to remember that the cash bail system is the humanitarian crisis that unfolds in real time, right? And I feel incredibly optimistic about the possibility of advancing reform that will make a bail fund intervention no longer necessary and will create a pretrial justice system that's based on respect, the presumption of innocence, humanity, and will no longer have a tutor system of justice, uh, one for the rich and one for everybody else. Do you have a human story that you share when you try to persuade people on the importance of this reform in the long term and the work that you're doing, of course, with the bail project? You know, we have a human story out of Oklahoma of a client of ours who we were able to bail out, but she was bailed out 48 hours after she was booked in. And by the time she got out, her children were already out of her care and she had lost her home. And so she fought her case while living in her car. 
And while the intervention was helpful and the case ultimately wound up being dismissed and she wound up getting her children back, that damage happened in those first 48 hours. And we keep that in our minds all the time as we try to use our revolving bail fund and the bail project model to alleviate that human suffering right up front uh, because it's so critically important. It's not only important to the people who are directly affected. What is the damage that it's doing to our larger society to treat a huge swath of the population sort of as second-class citizens? Well, it certainly calls into question our values. Uh, it calls into question what we say about ourselves as a country. What our legal system does and how it operates and who it impacts is a reflection on all of us. And frankly, I think it's why what happens in the criminal legal system, even if it doesn't touch you personally, implicates every single one of us. When a prosecutor gets up in a courtroom and acts on behalf of the people, they are doing so in our name. And so if we are holding people in jail cells because they don't have enough money in their ATM machine to pull out enough money to buy their freedom, that reflects on each and every one of us. It's enormously expensive to have a pretrial justice system the way that we operate it. American taxpayers spend $14 billion annually holding people in jail cells that haven't been convicted of crimes. And if you calculate the collateral consequences of that, it's estimated to be as high as $140 billion a year we spend to hold people in these horrible dehumanizing jail cells who have not yet been convicted of a crime and likely won't be convicted of a crime. Yes, that's a staggering number, and it's a staggering immorality on the part of our society, of which I think most of us are not aware. I bet that if more people understood what was happening, they would demand change. If you're an everyday American and you listen to this podcast for the first time and learn about what's going on, what would you recommend they can do to improve the situation? If you believe that the criminal legal system has not impacted you or your family, that people need to be very, very aware of what the numbers now look like in this country, because the chances are, you know, somebody who this has impacted. You may even love somebody who this has impacted. The new data shows that one out of two American families have an immediate relative who's been booked into a local jail. Think about that number. So people may not be talking about it, but I promise when you're at a family reunion and you think your family hasn't been touched, somebody's been touched. You just don't know about it. So that's really important. And that is in no way to mitigate the harm and the damage that has happened to low-income communities and particularly communities of color in this country who have borne the majority of the brunt of this criminal legal system for generations. Um, that is a very real and, and a historic problem that goes all the way back to Jim Crow. But it's also important to understand that as we've expanded our criminal legal system, it can happen to you also. Yeah, it can. Well, and look, there are enormous economic interests that have a desire to keep the criminal legal system at its current size. When you think about, you know, how large it's grown, dismantling a system like that is going to be very, very hard. And we have to be incredibly vigilant and analytic and careful. But what we reimagine is something really, really foundationally at our hearts about humanity and respect and honoring people and recognizing our history and reckoning with it and making sure that we don't do the same thing again. Who is invested in keeping the system the way that it is? 
So I would argue that every single step along the criminal legal process, we have enormous interest in keeping the system at its current size. That goes from how many people we have policing communities to how many jails we have built to how large prosecutor offices have become and public defenders have become to look at the sort of complex web of pretrial services we've created, of not-for-profit alternatives to incarceration. I mean, we have created an industry of punishment. And to dismantle that industry of punishment, we are all going to have to reckon with the size of the system and, and really begin to commit ourselves to decarcerating America. But with that comes the requirement and the commitment and the dedication to downsize us ourselves. Courtrooms have to be willing to close doors. Judges need to be willing to get off the bench. Offices need to be willing to be smaller. Jails need to be willing to close. Law enforcement and sheriffs and jail administrators need to recognize that to have a, a humane criminal legal system, it needs to repurpose all of the sort of... Um, human capital and facilities that we've created for more positive and productive reasons and try to make whole and heal the communities that we have damaged for far too long. Tell us about what does a dream look like? What is a world without bail? So look, I think as a society that we are addicted to punishment and to isolation. So we think about solving social problems these days as isolate and punish, isolate and punish. It's like a perpetual cycle of punishment. And it's not just the arrest and the conviction. Then we have a whole cycle of collateral consequences that we will also, you know, create obstacles for you in the future because you now have this criminal conviction. So we all have to grapple with sort of the fundamental questions about what justice means and what a criminal legal system should be for. It should not be a tool that is used to make sure that you have economic, political, and social control over marginalized communities. It should be a place where genuine justice is found and real healing can happen. That means both for the accused and for people that might have been harmed by crime. What do we mean when we say crime? What do we mean when we say punishment? And to shift our lens from isolation and punishment to what do you need? How can we help? How can we repair and how can we heal? And when you shift that paradigm, I think you will be able to move a criminal legal system from one extreme, hopefully to another that we can all someday be proud to call our own and operate in our name. What drives your passion? <sighs> Unfairness makes my blood boil. The very first time I walked into a criminal courthouse and I watched people of color in New York City being policed for conduct that I knew was going on in affluent white communities and watched the way people were treated and watched the pain and the desperation on families sitting in the audience as they were simply trying to wave at their loved one. Uh, and I watched those lines of men and women chained together. And I just remember thinking, this is what passes for justice in America? Go to a local criminal court house in your own jurisdiction and see what it looks like and ask yourself, do you want that being done in your name? And I know the first time I stepped foot in one of those criminal courthouses, I had two choices. I could walk away and decide that I never wanted to be part of a system that operated that way, and that would have been a legitimate decision to make, or I could throw myself headlong into it and do the best I could to change it and fight it and dismantle it and re-envision it. 
And I dedicated myself to doing that first as a public defender, then by creating and co-founding the Bronx Freedom Fund, and now by taking this model and the bail project and trying to scale it nationally. I simply can't turn my back on injustice. It, it makes my blood boil. Since you have had so much positive impact, looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? So what makes me hopeful is that this conversation is beginning to happen um, in all corners of America. It's no longer just defined by political ideology. I think people on the left, people on the right, people in the middle are all beginning to recognize that our criminal legal system has done far more damage than it has anything else. It's costing us enormous amounts of money and that it's actually utterly ineffective and doesn't work. And more importantly, has created a criminal legal system that I think the rest of the world looks at and thinks, what are you people thinking when you create a system that does that? How do you possibly think that that repairs people or even finds justice and amidst this mass of machinery? I'm hopeful because funders are coming into the criminal legal space and funding incredibly impactful people and organizations and, and grassroots movements that will really change the system. I'm hopeful because the voices of people who've been impacted by the system are finally being elevated and are actually leading this struggle forward, both in local jurisdictions across the country and nationally. I'm cautiously hopeful because I also recognize that systems will, will hold on tight And so I hope this isn't just a moment. I hope we are genuinely recognizing what we have done when we have embedded structural racism and economic inequality in the system that then polices certain communities and not others. And I hope that we are finally having these conversations across dinner tables and in classrooms in every single neighborhood in this country. I think that this is an important time and an exciting time. And that criminal justice reform will finally actually move forward so that we can actually start referring to the criminal justice system as that instead of the criminal legal system, because simply having the name justice in it is completely inappropriate uh, and doesn't really reflect what's happening. But someday, maybe it will. Hear, hear. Thank you very, very much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. When I think about mass incarceration, I think about low-level offenders, people who get caught with a joint in their pocket and then somehow get stuck in the prison system. I didn't fully understand that cash bail is the mechanism by which people are not only locked up, but kept there primarily because they're poor. And what's most shocking is that the cash bail system has been the sole driver of all jail growth in the last 20 years. That means that the majority of people in jail today have not been convicted of a crime. I'm not surprised to learn that the people defending their cases from a place of freedom get their charges dismissed half of the time or that in only 2% of the cases do the defendants end up with a prison sentence. But I am surprised that we have permitted this to go on for so long at an astonishing cost to our society not only in terms of actual dollars spent per incarcerated person, but in the exponential repercussions of taking productive members out of our society, our communities, our economy, and our democracy. We need to demand a truly humane justice system and eliminate cash bail the way that it is now. Next week, our guest is James Nickman. 
He's a health economist serving as the director of the Health and Analytics Lab at NYU Langone. We'll be talking about how we can deliver good health and long life expectancy for the rich and the poor, and what the consequences are for future healthcare costs. The problem in, in health economics for a long time was that when we looked at this question, we were focusing on how do we deliver and receive medical care effectively. But the real question I think economists and everybody else in the health field is beginning to realize now is that's not the focus, medical care. The focus is health. How do we get more health? That's what we're buying or spending resources on is health. And that leads to beginning to think about the efficiency of investments in education and income and social services. At the same time, you're thinking about the investments in medical care. You know, so I think that's sort of the changing perspective uh, in, in the field. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsumbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.